You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening, church. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 this evening. Um, We're continuing our study of the seven letters to the seven churches found in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, And this week we are going to be looking at what the Lord Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. It's the second letter of seven. Uh, But some words to begin while you're turning there. Persecution. Oppression. Martyrdom. Death. These are all words that grab our attention and hold us whenever we hear them, especially when they're spoken in a Christian context, right? And this isn't surprising for us. Uh, The history of the church since its beginning in the first century is one of persecution. There has never been a time since Jesus Christ founded his church that the people of God haven't experienced some form of oppression somewhere in the world in one place or another. Even now, we have brothers and sisters in foreign countries being murdered because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is outlawed in many places in the Middle East and Asia and other parts of the world. And even in what we would call more civilized places, Christians still experience various forms of persecution. Now, I think at this point, it's it's helpful for us to remember that persecution is on a spectrum. Maybe you've never thought of it this way. On the low end of the spectrum of persecution, there's probably things that you've dealt with already just as a Christian in America. Uh, People giving you a hard time for being a Christian, right? Like maybe teasing you or giving you jabs. Uh, occasionally uh, for your faith. And on the high end of that spectrum are people being tortured and killed for their faith in Christ, what we call martyrdom. Um, By the way, just so you know, martyrdom means to bear witness unto death, to give witness to Christ with your life. But in, in between those two poles, right, in between those two extremes on this spectrum of persecution, everything else fits in there. Right? Every discomfort that a Christian might receive from the world because of their faith in Jesus Christ fits on that spectrum. This could be open mockery, uh, job loss, social ostracism being threatened in some way, uh, familial strife, right? like family relations are kind of weird, uh, being shouted down when you're trying to explain to someone uh, your faith and, and the worldview you have because of the scriptures, and much, much more. Um, now for us, Often the thought of any kind of intense persecution uh, seems crazy, right? Because we're Americans. And that's because we've had, as I've said a a few times now, uh, we've had relative peace for the last 300 plus years, right? And I think that we can attribute that peace that we've experienced in the U.S. as Americans, uh, one, to God's mercy toward us, um, and two, the fact that our country was founded by a majority of Protestants. But... Guys, that, that time is coming to an end. And I'm not fear-mongering. I hate that. I, I, it's one of the reasons why I don't spend a whole lot of time watching uh, cable news. I don't like fear-mongering, but I'm just being honest with you. That time is coming to an end. Um, indeed, the time is coming, and honestly, is already starting to manifest itself when it's going to cost you something in some way to affiliate yourself with the Jesus of Scripture. Right? And I mean the true Christ. Not a cultural Jesus that's okay with your sin and doesn't demand repentance and will take you as you are and you can just stay that way. Don't get me wrong, Christ will take you as you are right now, but he will not leave you the same. 
right? But to affiliate with the Jesus of Scripture, not a Christ who's okay with your sin, is going to cost you something. You can see this with various lawsuits going on in all kinds of Western countries that threaten religious liberty, right? Look at some of the stuff Canada is doing to Christian schools and things like that. We can see this locally as a brother of ours is having to fight for his job because of his faith. And we can see this daily uh, in smaller ways even uh, on social media and the news and just in conversations with unbelievers about our faith, right? You can see this truth that the world hates the church, the world hates the church, and it's starting to show more and more in our culture. Now, listen, I'm not naive, and you shouldn't be naive either. It's always been there, right? It's always been there. The world has always hated the church. But it, for us, in our experience so far, it's kind of always sat beneath the surface, but not anymore. It's starting to rise above the surface. There are many who are now calling for society at large and our government to stop tolerating those who maintain a biblical and Christian worldview and hold to faith in Jesus Christ. The belief is growing that we, as the people of God, are to be ran out, shouted down, fired, kicked from the public square, physically assaulted, and silenced unless we come in line with what the world demands us to believe. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the church. Welcome to the church. This is our heritage. This is our lot in this life as the people of God. And that's why this letter to the church in Smyrna is so incredibly encouraging and helpful to us. Smyrna is some historical context for you. Smyrna was a city in the Roman Empire that was incredibly devoted to the Roman emperor, right, to the Caesar. And the majority of this city uh, was devoted to emperor worship, right? The Caesar claiming to be a god. They were right on board with that. They spent a lot of time worshiping the Caesar. They even had, uh, they were one of few cities that actually had a temple completely devoted to the emperor himself. Uh, not only that, but they also had a temple to the goddess that represented the city of Rome, right? The, her name was Dia Roma. Uh, this was a place that was insanely dedicated to its nation and its ways and its emperor. Uh, the city as a whole was actually so neck deep in paganism and emperor worship that it was hard to get a job or even participate in city life unless you were willing to bow the knee to Caesar quite literally and worship him as a god. Burn incense to Caesar, declare Caesar is Lord, and renounce ties to any other one who would claim Lord. You literally had to worship the Caesar if you wanted to get a job most of the time. Uh, those who refused to worship Caesar were considered by the people of the city of Smyrna uh, to be unpatriotic, to be disloyal, and to be untrustworthy. And... Unless those people came in line with what the people of Smyrna demanded, they would be jailed and killed. And to this persecuted church in Smyrna, Jesus writes a letter of encouragement. Right? It's one of only two letters that Jesus has John write for him that contain no rebuke. Smyrna is a good church. It's a faithful church. There's no rebuke in this letter, only encouragement. And to this persecuted people, Jesus says a few things that are incredibly important for the people of God to remember in times of persecution. And here's basically our outline this evening. One, Jesus is the only God. He's the sovereign one. Two, Jesus is victorious over death. Three, Jesus knows our sorrows and is not blind to them. Four, Jesus is sovereign over even our trials and persecutions. Five, those who remain faithful unto death will receive eternal life. 
this letter, you could look at it this way, I suppose. It's a bit of a rallying cry from King Jesus to his loyal subjects, the church, saying, hold fast. Don't give in. Don't compromise. Be faithful. I am all that matters. And I will reward my people with everlasting life. Keep the faith. So this evening, my, my goal, or rather what I, what I pray for you, is that you would see a big, sovereign King Jesus who is the center of everything and who is worthy of all your affections, who is worth your undying and unyielding allegiance, and that he alone is the only one that you owe that kind of love and worship to. I want you to see that he controls whatever persecution that we endure. I want you to be encouraged by his promise of eternal life to those who remain faithful. And I want you to be strengthened by the fact that men may kill our bodies, but we will never be touched by the second death. Eternal life is ours. So with that being said, let's read our text for the evening. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are in darkness and cannot receive the truth of your word without your help. So we ask that you would be merciful to us this evening and open our eyes and give us ears to hear and soften our hearts so that we would understand and believe what your word declares. Work in us by sovereign grace so that we might be changed by the power of your word. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So something that we need to know as we get into this uh, is that uh, in each letter's introduction, you'll, you'll see the more we go on through the series, in each letter's introduction, Jesus describes himself with a title or an attribute. Last week, he called himself the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Right? Um, he always describes himself with a title or an attribute. And the title or attribute that Jesus chooses is meant to either encourage or rebuke the church that he's addressing. Right? Just hear me out. It's not meant to be glazed over. Right? Sometimes I think we do that whenever we read some of the titles of Christ. This is not meant to be glazed over. It's not just meant to be understood as, well, it's just another way to say Jesus. Let's just keep going. Uh, it's more important than that. Okay? And the titles that Jesus uses for himself here in verse 8 are... The first and the last who died and came to life. So we're going to spend some time digging into these, right? And they're going, to, they're going to color how we read the rest of this letter. So we're really going to spend a good bit of time here. In verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2, we see Jesus says he is the first and the last. Now this is a pretty clear reference to something that the prophet Isaiah wrote. All right, just for your information... Uh, Revelation, most quoted books are Isaiah, Daniel, and the Psalms. I was listening to a preacher preach uh, about uh, Revelation. He said one of the reasons why people don't understand that book is because they won't read the prophets in the Old Testament. So if you don't understand or don't pay attention to Isaiah, Daniel, and the Psalms, 
you're going to kind of be lost to some of the things that John references in his uh, revelation. Uh, but this is a pretty clear reference. I am the first and the last. It's a reference to Isaiah 44, verse 6. Here's what Isaiah writes. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Here's what he says. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's what Jesus is referencing here. In no uncertain terms, in this title, the first and the last, Jesus is declaring to his people that he is the only God. Saying that he's the first and the last is to say that he is the eternal one. You'll remember from Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the first and the last, the eternal one. He is the one who was there in the beginning before there was anything else. We read in the Gospel of John chapter 1, Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. Not only that, but this is a declaration that Jesus is the supreme one. That everything in the universe finds its beginning and reason for existence in him. The first and the last. Jesus alone is the focal point of all things. I want you to see that. He, the sun rises and sets on our Lord Jesus. Right? You've heard that phrase before. That's how it goes with him. He is the supreme one. Right? To talk like a Puritan, we could say he is the chiefest of all beings. He is. He's the first and the last. He is the center of literally everything. That is to say, his reign as king is uncontested. Hear me, there is no legitimate rival to Jesus Christ. Foolish, wicked men might come and try to rival him and try to contradict him and try to claim to have more authority over you than him. They're liars. No one can match this king. His sovereignty is universal. His kingship knows no boundary. In other words, this world and everything in it is his. He is the first and the last. In declaring his complete and unchallenged supremacy, right? In declaring that he alone is the only God, Jesus encourages the, those who are suffering, those who are being persecuted. This knowledge that Jesus is the first and the last encourages us because we know that our pain and our persecution isn't random. It's not happening outside of the reign of our king. It's not. He's the eternal sovereign. The trials that we endure for our faith in Jesus Christ are completely controlled by him. They could not happen without his permission. He is the first and the last. He allows them to begin. He says when they will stop. That is to say we are never outside of his control. Nothing happens at random. This wasn't, nothing you're ever going to go through is a misfortune. We don't believe in luck. We're Christians. That's pagan. Though we may suffer, it is not as though our king has been overpowered. It's not as though Jesus is unaware. It is not as though there is no help for us when we suffer. We serve the first and the last. Not only that, but in reminding us that he is the first and the last. This is one of my favorite titles. I've come to, I've come to love this past week. I'm going to use it a lot. In coming to see that he is the first and the last, Jesus is affirming to us that he is the only God. As we read in Isaiah 44, verse 6, there is no other God beside him. Listen to me, there is no one else worthy of our affection. And when I say there's no one else worthy of your affection, what I mean is you may give your affection to another person in this world, that's fine. They don't deserve it. They're not worthy of it. They're a sinner. 
Jesus is the only one who's actually worthy of your affection. He's the only one who's actually worthy of your delight. The only one who's actually worthy of your worship. There is no other alleged God worth us giving up our lives in devotion and even death if necessary. Anyone else who might claim divinity is a liar. Anyone else who claims to have a right to our undying allegiance is a liar. Anyone who would dare contradict Jesus Christ is a false God to be abhorred and ignored. As the only God, Jesus gets the first fruits of our allegiance and our obedience. Everyone else comes second in our lives. Everything and everyone else. There are to be no gods beside him. First commandment, as Stephen prayed, no gods but him. Allegiance and faithfulness to Christ is to come at all costs because he is the only one worthy of it. Again, everything else on the earth is just another creation like us. Why should it deserve such obedience and submission from us? It doesn't. Christ alone deserves full submission from his people. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who created us. He's the one who sustains us. He's the only God. He's the only one that deserves this level of devotion. No one else is Lord. Write that down. Remember that. No one else is Lord. No one else is sovereign king. No one else is God. Right? The oldest Christian creed is Jesus is Lord. That is a huge statement when you really sit and ponder what does it mean that he is Lord. It means he's Lord of everything. Cattle on a thousand hills, it's his. The earth and the fullness thereof belong to him. He is Lord. He alone is God and there is no God beside him. We are faithful to him and obey him above all other allegiances that we might have. His other title, the first and the last, who died and came to life. This title reminds us that Jesus is the king who knows our persecution. It says he died. The one who died. He's been there where the persecuted church is. No matter how small or how great your persecution might be as one of the children of God, Jesus knows the hatred of men. Read the Gospels. He knows the hatred of men. He knows the pangs of poverty. He knows the horrors of torture. He knows the pain of death. He knows the terror of the grave. He died. And as we think on the truth that Jesus is the one who died, we are reminded that it was for us that he died. He is the one who died for us. He took a body to himself and was born for the express purpose that he would one day bear our sins on the cross and suffer the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be saved. For our sake, the first and the last, the author of life tasted death for us that we might live eternally with him. And I wanted to highlight that real quick because Christian if you're suffering some kind of persecution, if, if you feel like the world hates you, if it's clear to you that the world hates you right now, I know sometimes that the sovereignty of Jesus does not make you feel any better when you're hated by the world. Sometimes it doesn't. But please, never forget that coupled with sovereign power is the love of Christ. If Jesus is just sovereign, how does that make me, how does that comfort me? But if we couple his sovereignty with his love for me, that he's the one who died for me. What comfort that that is. And the fact that he suffered death for you in order to save you is the proof 
that he loves you. The fact that he is the one who died should warm your heart because he died for you, Christian. So you ought to take heart because everything that he allows to befall you is ultimately for your good. He's proven it in his death that he loves you and he would never do anything that's not for your own good. But he isn't merely the one who died. No, he's much more than that. He is the one who died and came to life. Right? Jesus is the one who is victorious over death. The grave could not hold this king. He is the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. He is the conqueror of death. He died but was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He is alive and he is alive forevermore. Never again to experience pain or death. He is risen and glorified. Now listen to me. Since he is our federal head, right? Since he is our representative before God and we've been united to him by faith, whatever is true of him is true of us. Except for those things that are unique to his divinity. But whatever is true of him is true of us. Jesus is saying this for a reason to people who are being persecuted. He is victorious over death. We will be too. He could not remain dead. We will not either. He died and came to life. The same is true for us. His victory over sin, Satan, and death is our victory as well since we belong to him. So when we're threatened with persecution, how glorious is this truth Even if we die because of our faith in Jesus, we will live. Death cannot hold us because we are united to the one who died and came to life. This is encouragement for people who are persecuted. These two titles of Christ, I know I spent a lot of time on them. They have a wealth of encouragement and truth in them. And they help to embolden and strengthen the people of God when the heat is on. And that's why Jesus uses them here to open this letter. The first and the last who died and came to life. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This verse tells us that, or rather it tells us what the church of Smyrna was enduring already when the letter was written. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and poverty. This wasn't ordinary poverty that came by... um, Like, like, a, like a burned down home or, or, or some, some awful um, act of God like that. Um, and, this, and this wasn't a poverty that came from just plain old laziness, right? It wasn't that kind of a poverty. No, this poverty came from persecution because of their faith, right? Poverty and tribulation are coupled in this verse. We're meant to see them together. I know your tribulation and, your po- and poverty, They're meant to go together. So because these Christians refuse to participate, as we talked about in the introduction, they refuse to participate in worship to false gods. Primarily, they would not worship Caesar. Because of that, they couldn't really find work. They couldn't really provide for their families. Not only that, uh, but historically, we we see some evidence that that they may have been suffering robberies and looting. Right, people legit just breaking in and taking whatever they want or robbing them. Um, and, and, and the people of Smyrna just kind of turn their heads to what's going on and turn a blind eye because they have an attitude of, who cares? It's just a Christian. It doesn't matter. We hate these people anyway. Take what you want from them. Right? So they were poor because of their persecution. And hear me out. This was real abject poverty. All right? This wasn't American poverty where you have a government phone, food stamps, and government housing. Right? It wasn't that kind of poverty. This was, I don't know when I'm going to eat again, and I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. 
Right? This was abject poverty. And it was all because of their faith in Jesus. They literally were losing everything because of their allegiance to Christ. And here's the kicker, and this is always looming, I'm sure, in the back of their minds. If they would just compromise on God's truth and abandon Christ and worship Caesar, bow the knee to their government, then this would all go away. But they refused. They refused and they suffered for it. Not only that, but Jesus mentions that they were being slandered by Jews in the city. Right Now, I'm not being anti-Semitic here. This is just, uh, this is just historically what happened to the church. All right? He says they claim to be Jews, but they are not. Meaning that these Jews claim to be the people of God, like Jews still do to this day. But Jesus says they're not really Jews. Right? Read Romans 2. A Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly, but one who is inwardly a Jew. One who actually worships God and knows God. Jesus says that these people aren't really God's people. These Jews in Smyrna. Right? And we know that the Jewish people ceased to be God's chosen people as a whole when they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And salvation went out to the Gentiles, thank God. <laughs> right? That's why we're here. But Jesus says they aren't the people of God since they reject him. And instead, they've actually become a synagogue of Satan. They've actually become people of the devil. And these Jews gave evidence that they didn't belong to God by the fact that they persecuted and lied about people in the church who actually belonged to God. The Jews in Smyrna hated Christians. Seriously, in the first century, Christians were more harshly persecuted by Jews than Romans. You should know that. The Jews hated Christians. And they were quick to point them out to Roman authorities and have them arrested. That's what we see here. And Jesus says that they're slandered. Right? That the Christians are slandered by the Jews. Meaning that the Jews were spreading lies about them. They were probably blaming things on the Christians that the Christians didn't actually do. Saying that they sought to overthrow the Roman government. And just overall trying to get people to hate the Christians. It's clear to see that these Christians suffered much for the sake of Christ and faithfulness to him. They were losing jobs. They were losing homes. They were poor. Abject poverty was their lot in life. They were being lied on. Their characters were being maligned because of their faithfulness in Christ. It's very clear to see that they suffered much for the sake of Christ and faithfulness to him. But for all that they had lost and all that they were suffering, Jesus says... But you are rich. But you are rich. They have nothing in this life, but they're rich. Right? Not in, not in money, clothing, homes, or possessions, but they were spiritually rich in spite of their poverty. They were rich in faith and heirs to a kingdom that no one could ever take from them. They were rich in the blessings of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. They had received the, the rich blessing of the Holy Spirit living and abiding in them. And in the midst of their sufferings, they were storing up treasures in heaven that no one could ever steal from them. But for all that they had already suffered, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna that it is not over. Rather, it's going to get worse. In verse 10, he gives them some encouragement before going on to how bad it's going to get. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And you read that, and you think of what they're already dealing with. And you see what he says after, do not fear what you're about to suffer. It's about to get so much worse. So Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. Don't be scared. Why, though? 
Right? Why should we not fear the persecution of the world? Persecution is scary, and certainly these people were scared of what might be coming down the road. Right? How are we to be bold and not to be afraid in the face of persecution? Do not fear. How are we not going to be afraid? Our answer is found back in verse 8. I am the first and the last. That's your answer. For how to not be afraid whenever you have to undergo persecution. Remember Christ crying out to you, I am the first and the last. Since he's the sovereign one, he is sovereign over our persecution. Nothing going on, nothing is going to come upon us that he has not ordained. And as we talked about earlier, since we know that he loves us and died for us, we know that whatever suffering that we deal with is ultimately for our good. Listen to me, it has to be. It has to be for our good. He's proven that he loves you. Why would he seek your harm? It must ultimately be for our good. Christian, your God is in control. As we sang in the opening song, your God is in control. Do not be afraid of whatever trial may come upon you. Right? And the Bible constantly repeats this truth, doesn't it? I mean, how many times have you heard me say in the last five years, God is sovereign? It's almost annoying, but it's true, so it can't be annoying, right? God is sovereign. God reigns. God is in control. The Bible constantly thunders this truth. And that's because when the, the first thing that we forget whenever trials and hardship comes is that God is sovereign and he loves me. That's the first thing we tend to forget. So this is a call for us to renew our faith in the Lord, to rely upon and trust the one who is the first and the last. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I am God. And he's the only God. But Jesus continues, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. If I could sum this up, Jesus says, guys, it's bad, but it's about to get a lot worse. That's what he tells the church in Smyrna. I know it's bad, but it's about to get worse. Some of these Christians are about to be arrested and thrown into prison by people who are under the influence of the devil. Right? That's why Jesus says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Not directly, but indirectly using humans. Which reminds us that Satan is the lower G God of this world. And that the the world hates the church and follows Satan. But he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Listen to me. This isn't a modern prison where you serve five to ten years and then get out. Right? In ancient Rome, prison is where you're held while you await trial. And in the context of this letter, after that trial, you were either released or executed. It was just a holding place, very temporary, while you awaited trial. Jesus is saying... Some of you are going to die because of your faith in me. He's being very plain with them. Some of you will die. Jesus says that in this harsh persecution that leads to death for some, that they will be tested. Right? Meaning that their faith will be refined. They're going to be put through a crucible and purified by the persecution. And those who truly belong to Christ will be shown to actually belong to him. Right? The faith professed by, these, by the church in Smyrna will be proven to be faith that they actually possessed. 
And Jesus says that this persecution will last 10 days. And that seems really strange to us, 10 days. This, this 10 days uh, that Jesus talks about is probably an allusion to Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Right? You guys will remember that story uh, where the four Jewish men would not eat the king's food because it was dedicated to idols. Right? The king said, eat the, drink the wine, eat the meat. They said, I, I can't do that. It's, it's not because it, I'm sure the food tasted fine. It was because that food had been sacrificed to idols. Right? So what did the Jewish men do? They said, no, let's have a 10-day trial where we'll eat only vegetables and you pagans can eat whatever idolatrous food that you want to eat. In that narrative in Daniel chapter 1, the point was that the four Jewish men were refusing to partake in idolatry. Because in eating that meat that was sacrificed to idols, they would have been participating in the worship of that God as the pagans were around them. They said, we can't do that. We serve Yahweh. We serve the God of Israel, the only God, the living God. They refused to take part in idolatry, and instead they remained faithful to God. In the same way, the Christians in Smyrna were tempted to give worship to Caesar in order to spare their lives. They were tempted to compromise. They were tempted to idolatry and to be unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is reiterating to them, this is all a test to see the genuineness of your faith. Remember Daniel. That's what he's telling them. But this is a test of faith that will only last a short time. Ten days. Again, I don't think that's meant to be taken literally. But ten days in, compared to eternity, in comparison to eternity. It's a very short time. By the end of it, Jesus will be glorified and his people will be proven to be true. That's what he's getting at here. I hope you can see... Right? Here's what I'm driving at if you can't see it. Or I'm going to connect the dots for you. This is all one big battle of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That's what this is. This life in general is one big battle of faithfulness to Jesus. The world and Satan are constantly at odds with God's people trying to tempt us to abandon Christ in one way or another. Right? Listen, whether it be big or small, whether it be private or public, right? Whether it be in the privacy of your home or in the public square or in the workplace, the world is always calling us to abandon Christ and put something else on the throne in our hearts. That's constantly the temptation for the people of God. We're always tempted to put some idol in Christ's rightful place and bow down to it. Whether it be the opinions of men, comfort, Social status, being likable, or something else. We're always tempted to put something else on the throne in our heart. But like all the people of God who came before us, like Daniel, we must remain faithful at all costs. Even if it, meant spilling, even if it means spilling our blood, we must remain faithful. We must not bow the knee to any false god. And listen to me, compromising God's truth with the world is bowing the knee to Caesar. Refusing to thunder the gospel forth to a dying world is compromise. It's idolatry. Compromising your morality is idolatry. And it's not even your morality. I misspoke. The morality of God and his law. To compromise that is idolatry. We must keep our unyielding allegiance to the first and the last. 
the one who died and came to life. So we come to Jesus' command to us in the midst of suffering in verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. When we read this, it's as if we hear the voice of Jesus crying out like a general to his soldier, Hold ranks. Hold the line. Don't abandon me and go to the other side. Hold. Be faithful. This is what we do when persecution breaks over us. This is the overarching command for all of the people of God. Be faithful. Be faithful. The pagan city of Smyrna was screaming, Be faithful to Caesar. And booming over their voices comes the voice of the only God saying, Be faithful to me. Our culture daily beckons us to bend the knee to popular opinion, to unhitch ourselves from the scriptures, to abandon such antiquated belief in a God, to forsake the truth of the gospel, and to embrace sin in all of its forms. And the world threatens us, do as we say. Think as we think. Believe as we tell you or we will make your life miserable and you will be hated and you will lose your jobs and you will lose all social credit. You will be cast out from us and you'll lose your life. But over this awful noise of the world, Jesus speaks to us in this letter saying, be faithful. Be faithful. This is a call for us to hold fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Listen to me. No president is Lord. No military commander is Lord. No teacher or professor is Lord. No senator is Lord. No earthly judge is Lord. No police officer is Lord. No college administration is Lord. No governor is Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. Christ alone Hold fast to your confession and be faithful. Do not abandon your king when the pressure is on. Instead, Jesus says, be faithful unto death. We are to be faithful to our God and king until there is no breath left in our mortal bodies. Be faithful. We will not compromise. We will not bow the knee to Caesar. We will not bow down to the tyranny of a world that hates our God. We will not give up the scriptures. We will not give up biblical morality. We will not stop preaching about the wrath of God coming against the unrepentant. We will not stop preaching the gospel of free grace and salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we will not stop declaring the supremacy of Christ in all things. We will, until our dying breaths, declare that Jesus is Lord. And we will do so. Listen to me. We will do so not because we are contrary. Let me say that again. We're not doing it because we're jerks and just want to disagree with the world because we feel like it. And we will not do so because we want to look like tough guys who took a stand like we're in some western film. No. We will remain faithful because we must. Because we must. Because Christ is worthy. He is the first and the last. Because he alone is God. Because he is the one who died for us. Because he is our savior and our king. 
because we have come to see and believe that he is the most beautiful thing in all the world and we must have him. And we must have him above all other things, even our very lives. I must have him. He has been so good to us. He's been so kind to us. He has shown us so much grace. He has saved our souls. How could we ever abandon him? I'll illustrate this with a, with this, with a true story. Polycarp, right? You've heard of him, the church father, who was the bishop of Smyrna, I might add. Uh, before he was burned at the stake in 155 AD because of his faith in Christ, he was told to, to curse the name of Christ or die. His reply, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burned him to death. How can I blaspheme my king who died for me? How can I worship a false god when there's only one god and he's loved me so much? How can I compromise on his truth and call him a liar? He's never done me any harm. He's only been good to us. The great love that Christ has shown us binds us to him. Does it not, Christian? Binds us to him. The great mercy that he's shown sinners like you and I. His atoning death. His perfect life in our place. His imputed righteousness given to us. The blessings that come from him. They bind us to him. How could we blaspheme our king? The fact that he has drawn us to himself keeps us faithful to him. But Christ doesn't just give us a command to be faithful. He gives us the promise of eternal reward. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Pay attention to that wording, right? This reward is certain. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I will, and this is not an I will from a mere man, which really usually means I might. This is I will from the first and the last. This is rock solid certainty for the believer. If we remain faithful throughout this life, if we do not abandon our king, we will receive the crown of life. And this crown of life is just another way to say eternal life. Those who give up their lives in order to follow Jesus, though they die, yet they shall live. Like Jesus says in the Gospels, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That's the promise to us. Please understand that this is not a guess. This is not an unfounded belief, right? This isn't just one of our believies that makes us feel better. This is the very word of God himself. The first and the last has spoken this. Eternal life for the one who perseveres to the end is more sure than anything else in the world because God himself has promised it to his people. He has said it, he will see to it. Our God is faithful to his word. This promise is for you to keep and to hold on to throughout this life. This is a sweet word to those who are about to lose everything. This is a sweet word to those who are about to lose their lives. To know that even if we die, that we will live again as a grace from God. And it sustains us. It's a grace from God, this promise, to sustain us in the trial. But just think about it, though. Right? The crown of life to those who persevere. Jesus is telling us, 
What can they really do to you? The worst thing that they can do is kill your body. And when you close your eyes in death, you open them in the life to come with a crown of everlasting reward. This is our hope. This is our hope. We don't look to the world to satisfy. We don't look for comfort here. We don't look for acceptance here. Rather, we look forward to the life to come where we will be with Christ forever. And this is the life that was purchased for us and secured by Jesus himself in his life, death, and resurrection. So Christian, keep your eyes focused on what actually matters. Keep the eye of faith focused on the Lord and his promises. Don't give in. Be faithful and receive your reward. Verse 11. I know I've been up here for a while. Just won't be much longer. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus ends this letter like he ends the others. He's saying, listen up. If you belong to me, listen to what I say and take heed because this is important. The one who conquers, the one who remains faithful, who continues to trust in Christ, who does not abandon him, who is faithful unto death, such a person will not be hurt. King James says, will not be touched by the second death. This second death is the lake of fire mentioned in Revelation 20. It's the unbearable wrath of God that is to come against the the unbelieving and wicked. It's the eternal destiny of all those who refuse Christ and refuse to submit to and worship him alone as the only God. And Jesus says that this eternal wrath and punishment will never, never touch the one who is faithful to Christ. Praise God. We're safe. Right? And how could it? The ones who are faithful to Christ are the ones that, for whom Christ died on the cross. The ones that Christ has saved from that very wrath by his life, death, and resurrections. The one who, from the foundation of the world, had their names written in the book of the, in the, book of the Lamb who was slain. How could we ever suffer the second death? This is a beautiful promise to the persecuted people of God. That we may suffer horrible agonies in this life for the sake of Christ. We will never suffer ultimate and final pain. Those who are faithful will only experience but one death. And then glory. Glory with our God and King for eternity. The devil may be given power to imprison and persecute and kill us, but that is it. His power is limited. And in his hatred, he pushes the people of God to glory. The faithful win, regardless of what we suffer here. And we do so because Christ has won the victory for us. Eternal life is ours and we'll never experience the pain of God's condemnation because we belong to the first and the last who died and came to life. I'll leave you guys with Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 26 through 33. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark Say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. May God grant his people endurance, perseverance, and faithfulness as we continue this life hated by the world, but loving our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word given to us, faithfully passed down to us through the ages. Thank you for this eternal truth given to your persecuted church because we've always been persecuted somewhere in some way. God, I pray that you grant us perseverance. Encourage us as we remember that we serve the first and last who died and came to life, and as he lives, so shall we. So God, in whatever you might have planned for us in this life, whatever pain or suffering that you foreordained for us, God, I pray you'd give us the grace to be faithful, not to avoid the pain necessarily, but to be faithful unto death. Please bless us and help us. Help us to keep our eyes focused on your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.